Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by ATO Assistant Commissioner, Private Wealth, Anna Longley. Anna has a legal background and holds a Masters of Taxation. Anna started at the ATO in 2003 and has worked in tax technical roles across the ATO, having experience for different taxes and market segments. She also understands the journey taxpayers take in dealing with the ATO, having worked on early engagement matters, reviews and audits, objections, through to litigation. Anna has extensive experience in alternative and early dispute resolution processes and has represented the Commissioner in the AAT and the Federal Court. In her current role as Assistant Commissioner Private Wealth, Anna leads 20 teams undertaking client engagement and review work, including early engagement on commercial deals and providing tax assurance for a significant number of the ATO's top 500 privately owned and wealthy group clients. She's also responsible for the ATO's valuation team and not-for-profit compliance and sits on the ATO's GAR panel. Now that is the General Anti-Avoidance Rules panel for those of you who are not familiar with the GAR panel. Uh, basically looks after part 4A. Anna, welcome to Taxiac. Robin, thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I have seen you present a number of times over the years. And apart from uh, technical background and knowledge, which is always engaging, you've got a wicked sense of humour. And I'm well, sure this might come out a couple of times during this discussion, so we'll see how we go. I like to think there's um, some way we can make tax somewhat fun. Absolutely. <laughs> Talking to the right person. All right, so Anna, we're going to have a chat today about managing tax risk, which is really a walk through all the different aspects of tax dealings with the ATO. We're going to talk about some different topics. But what is tax risk for you? What does a client need to think about? And that's both a client of an accounting firm and a client of the ATO. What is tax risk? Tax risk is something that the ATO is trying to help clients understand such that um, they can understand that we have a view of them based on um, their business modelling and the arrangements that they enter into as well as what the potential outcome of a mistake might be. Um, So we see tax risk as a risk that companies may be paying uh, or accounting for an incorrect amount of tax um, or that the tax position a company adopts is uh, maybe out of step with the tax risk appetite that the directors um, think is appropriate for the particular company or or the group. Um, And it also really bears into account what does the ATO think of the positions that you're taking? Is there a different view that the ATO has uh, of a particular arrangement or transaction? And that might indicate that there's a tax risk there. With tax risk, is it always about a group and a business transaction and arrangement where the directors are forming a position and they approach you and talk it through? Does tax risk go beyond that kind of more structured environment into just individuals lodging their I returns and claiming expenses? Does it get into investors with rental properties? Does it get into capital gains and all these sorts of other aspects of tax? As a concept, yes, of course it does. So tax risk will be present whenever you're uh, undertaking anything to do with your tax or uh, lodging any of the returns. Um, But realistically, I think for uh, the majority of clients or for the majority of taxpayers, they're really going to have to only engage in tax risks if they do have a larger arrangement or more complex affairs. Uh, For individuals, a lot of that tax risk is taken out of the system by the way that we are helping taxpayers to get it right and to do the right thing. So through the withholding and the STP reporting, employers are doing a lot of that for them. 
But if they're starting to get into, say, an investment transaction like capital gains calculations, that becomes more sophisticated. That's exactly right. So really by um, the way that we are doing things now, we're trying to minimise tax risk on behalf of taxpayers as much as we can so that they can concentrate their efforts on the things that maybe are a little bit more contentious or a little more out of the ordinary. I think the ATO would be the first to agree with this. Our laws are complex. Yes. And we've got three quarters of the individual population and 95% of the business population engaging a tax agent. And we, of course, frequently in our dealings are out in the suburbs and we're talking to these practitioners who have to make a call on how something's going to be treated. Private rulings are there as a, a backstop. People can apply for one, but we know that that's often not a preferred pathway. So when people are out there trying to deal with this, um, you at the ATO, as well as all the practitioners, are having to deal with really complex laws and interpretation issues. Yes, that's right. Uh, a lot of the materials that we put out are designed to assist with tax risk management. Um, and I'm not sure that we've really said it that way too much in the past, but realistically, that's what they're aimed at. Our um, taxation rulings, some of our practical compliance guidelines, all of the web material that we put out. This is designed to help people understand what the legislation means and where they might be entering into risky territory. It's almost a throwback from when we moved into self-assessment that 92, the public ruling system, of course, became part of the tax system. And that was the point when the government said, right, taxpayers, we're not going to have assessors anymore. And this is really for the benefit of those who weren't around in those days. But some of you will remember the old assessors and they would receive reams of paperwork, they would assess your tax liability. That got removed and the onus got thrown back onto the taxpayer. And so the system now says, right, you work it out, but we'll give you all this information so you know how to get it right. But it doesn't mean they always get it right. No, of, of course not. So mistakes will always happen and it is acknowledged that the tax laws are complex and some of the things that people are dealing with are very difficult. But you would also see a difference between genuine mistakes and more deliberate, contrived arrangements. You generally can tell the difference, yes. <laughs> okay. All right, so if we talk about early engagement, so this is really a process that before tax returns are lodged, um, might it even be before the transactions are undertaken? Or would you generally see an engagement being once a transaction's undertaken but prior to lodgement? Where would the engagement usually take place? Where we might engage with a taxpayer or their representative could vary depending on the needs of the client. So we may well see that a client comes to us for early engagement prior to lodging a private binding ruling request. So they might give us a call or use the email service that we have and come and have a chat with us around what it is that they're looking to enter into. It might be um, a particular arrangement, it might be a restructure, something of that nature. Um, and we can give them an indication of how we see that particular arrangement. In some cases, it may well be that uh, the taxpayer is happy with having that initial chat and getting an indication of what our view of the risk is. And there may be no further engagement beyond lodging the return after that? That's correct. Yep, okay. In other instances, they may and we may agree that a private binding ruling is a better way to go. Okay. And so we can still go down that private binding ruling path. The benefit of coming to us early though, prior to lodging a private binding ruling request, is that we can understand the purpose of the arrangement, we can understand what the intended impact is or outcome, and we can uh, think about the private binding ruling in that context. 
Um, the other way that we are engaging early is in the context of commercial deals. So where uh, entities are entering into commercial transactions, that could be um, sales of assets, sales of shares, uh, could be property transactions. We are engaging with taxpayers either prior to, during or following the transaction to help guide them as to what the appropriate tax consequence is. Can we break that down? Who starts the engagement? Who picks up the phone to whom? Has it always started with the taxpayer initiating that contact? The way the commercial deals program started in 2015 was that we would make contact with taxpayers' advisors. Uh, generally for uh, large transactions, we were making one-to-one uh, -one contact and inviting them to have a discussion with us to agree what the appropriate tax return labels would contain. Uh, fast forward several years and we're now seeing more and more examples of taxpayers coming to us. Uh, and that's something we really do encourage. So where taxpayers um, or advisors uh, understand that they're going to be entering into a commercial transaction, that's a good time to get in touch with us. We do realise though that uh, in the thrust of commercial deals, it may not always be possible to come and speak to the tax office early. So in those circumstances, if we're seeing people prior to lodgement of the return, then that's a really good outcome as well and we can agree the tax return labels. I think really though the only thing I would say is to come to us as early as possible. Uh, we generally for um, a reasonably complex transaction we're looking at around the four month mark to... Four months out? Yes. Or four months to go through the process? Four months to go through the process, yeah. okay. yes. And so what the do you earlier call... the better. <laughs> What do you call large? You say large transactions that agents might be handling, but what would you call large? From the ATO's way of thinking at the moment, we're looking at around about $30 million of transaction is the amount that we will be contacting people one-to-one. -one. We may send letters out for transactions we identify that are under that amount. Um, alternatively, as I said, taxpayers and their advisors can get in touch with us. There's not a hard and fast rule as to what the appropriate amount should be. Well, for example, if there was an agent looking at a sale of business and they're wondering whether they're eligible for the small business CGT concessions, 30 mil is clearly outside that range. But with a six mil threshold, they can still engage with you and work out whether they're sitting between five and six mil or are they between six and seven mil. That would be a very appropriate example to really come and have a chat with us. It might well be that that could be a fairly quick engagement with us. Mm -hmm. um, but really, I think it's really around the significance of the transaction and that could be also based on the significance to the client rather than the significance to the ATO. We have had an example where uh, the vendor in a particular relationship was uh, selling their family property so and that, that was their life, them, that, that was their was, business. That's correct, that yep. was their entire life. Uh, the purchaser, it was a drop in the ocean for that particular uh, group. So that was one where we could really help the taxpayer. They were uncertain as to the outcome. As it turned out, they were completely correct and they just wanted to have that assurance so that they, they got it right. right. Yes. Yep. Do you also accept there would be taxpayers and agents where the last thing they would want to do is approach the ATO? That's correct. We're trying to change that. Yeah. And it's just a mentality and a mindset. And when we talk in sessions about, look, you can go and seek some professional tax advice or you can seek a private ruling, 
so often there is resistance against seeking a ruling or engaging with the ATO. So it's interesting that, are you seeing a change in cultural thinking about, yes, it's good to actually engage with the ATO early? I have found that the advisors who have brought their clients to us or have in fact gone through a process where we have contacted the client are often coming back to us again. So we are seeing more and more repeat customers, so to speak. Um, And so that really to me suggests that people are seeing the benefit. Um, So we are really relying on advisors still quite a lot to help us drive this program, but I think they are seeing benefits for their clients. Can you give us an idea of the value of the business deals in the last three years that the ATO has handled? So in terms of early engagement and advising and providing support. Yes, so in our commercial deals program, to date we have uh, assured the outcomes of $33 billion worth of business deals. So that includes things such as sale of businesses, commercial properties and uh, initial public offerings. That's resulted in agreement on $6 billion of tax return line items. So that really means, in essence, for a taxpayer, that's $6 billion worth of line items that we're not going to come and ask questions about later. And that's can I done. assume that once that's done and signed off through this process, there are appropriate notes or whatever passed on? Because I can just see someone else in the ATO not talking to this part of the ATO where there could be some sort of um, activity that's commenced when there wasn't an understanding that this had previously been agreed to. So I'm assuming there would be nice communication all the way through, or am I being a bit optimistic here? There most certainly should be uh, details in the system as to the commercial deals program and the assurance that's been reached. Uh, I must though stress that what is signed off is the outcome of that transaction. So it doesn't mean that the entire year has been assured. What we're looking or at Or the is, entire labels. Or the entire labels. Yes, yes that's right. It's yep. just that transaction that Understand. we look at. Um, but it does mean that you know that the outcome of that transaction we won't be auditing in another three or four years when you've forgotten it even happened. Yep. Okay. What is the ATO focusing on at the moment? So you've got this top 500. Uh, there's always a lot of talk about governance, big data, data matching powers of the commissioner. And just to make some preliminary comments before we get into this, two things. People, clients, taxpayers are always surprised at the powers of the ATO. They seem surprised that you can get access to the data that you do. And they say, but what about privacy? So there seems to be a a disconnect between the expectations of what they think the commissioner should be able to do and what in fact the commissioner is able to do. Secondly, if I think back through dozens, hundreds of decisions before the tribunal and the courts that I've trained on over 20 years, many of those cases revolve around substantiation, documentation, supporting a position. And if the paperwork is not well prepared, if it is not consistent with the purported position being taken by the taxpayer, they often come unstuck. So I just want to start with those two things about understanding what the Commission is able to do and how important documentation is. So you've started with some small topics there, Robin, I like that. (laughs) I will start with substantiation. I think that's a, a better one for me to tackle to start with. Really, to me, again, this goes back to our theme for today, which is tax risk. You're minimising the risk for yourself, your business uh, further down the track. 
if you're properly documenting all of the arrangements that you enter into, uh, and importantly, why. I think in a lot of instances, we're going back and we're asking taxpayers in the context of some of the uh, engagements and audits we're doing, why is it that you've entered into this transaction in this way? If there's contemporaneous documentation that outlines that, that really is a significant uh, help to us. Um, and it also, of course, therefore, helps the taxpayer as well in substantiating their view. As you outlined at the beginning, I've worked in litigation for quite some time in the ATO, and that was a factor that came up time and time again was around substantiation. Uh, and as I've alluded to earlier, audits are backwards looking. They're quite historical, sometimes up to three or four or more years. And in those instances, it's very difficult always to rely on your memory of why you've entered into something. But through um, the litigation the, that you've been involved in, and we've read this through the decisions and the, the, the judgments, often taxpayers will say, I can't remember. Now, whether that's genuine, it's so long ago, I can't remember, or whether it's, I don't want to remember, but if there's a lack of documentation, it's so difficult to prove your position. That's correct. That's definitely correct. And I've always been, anyone who sat through my sessions, I've always advocated, remove doubt. Yeah, if someone says, should I do this or should I not? Um, for example, the trustee resolution. Um, there was a big push on that, of course, post Bamford to get all that done properly after four decades of not doing it properly. Um, there were some trustees where there wasn't a corporate trustee, and so there was no requirement in the deed to necessarily follow corpse law or even to provide a written resolution. And so the trustees would ask their accountant, do I have to do a written resolution? The accountants would then ask me. And I'd say, well, if your deed is silent, then no, there's no requirement to do a written resolution. But you want to remove doubt. So isn't it better to record that and have it uh, as a support of what your decision is rather than try and say, well, yes, I said that, but I've got no way of proving it. Now, that's just a little example, but in, in any of these dealings, really taxpayers should be striving to remove doubt. So if it is called into question, they can't be challenged on it. That's exactly right. So uh, when we're looking at our top 500 program, it's recently been expanded. Uh, we are trying to work with clients to get to what we're saying is justified trust. So we are trying to work with them so that we have trust in them that what they're doing is the right thing and they're paying the appropriate amount of tax. A justified trust is a term that's relatively new. It's been thrown all around a lot in ATO circles and I've heard it mentioned at many conferences, but I think most practitioners wouldn't understand what justified trust is. So can you just explain in a little bit more detail the concept of justified trust? You say it's that you can trust the taxpayer, but what does that mean? A lot of advisors won't really have had much to do with the concept of justified trust at this point in time. We are using it in our public groups and international space as well as uh, the private wealth space. And that's where we're looking at our biggest clients and trying to understand what is it um, that they're doing and can we assure that they're paying the right amount of tax. And we do that by looking at things such as their tax governance and how they're adhering to their tax governance. We also look at uh, any tax risks that are flagged to the market in relation to the things that they've been doing. We also look at any significant or new transactions that they're undertaking and what they can tell us around those. And we also look, uh, lastly, at their uh, 
economic performance. So their their tax to economic performance ratio. They're the things that we look at to really think about how well do we understand this taxpayer? How well do we understand their business? And how sure are we that they're doing the right thing when it comes to their tax performance? So it's about a level of comfort for the ATO? Yes, it certainly is. So if you see something that doesn't look right, or if there's ambiguity or doubt, or if the taxpayer can't explain their position, then this raises alarm bells for you? It may well. Um, and importantly, I suppose, through the Top 500 program, that's a series of discussions that we have. So it's it's not a once in, send in your information and uh, we've made a decision about you that lasts forever and always. It's not that simple. No, it's certainly not. <laughs> All right. Can you talk about the role of big data? So again, another phrase that's being thrown around. Um, ATO has access to just about anything at once. Uh, I've always described the ATO as having more power than the, the federal police because federal police have to go and wake up a, a magistrate in the middle of the night to get a search warrant. The ATO can just issue a 353 notice. That's correct. So uh, when you say big data, there are a few ways that we do get information. And one of those ways is the 35310 notices rather than to individuals, but to third parties that hold information. And just to pause you there, Anna, the 35310, for those of you who remember the old 263 and 264 notices, that's where they're now sitting on the Tax Act. They got moved. That's correct. (laughs) Uh, And we can also issue those uh, information notices or requirements to provide that information to individuals uh, or representatives of companies. So we are using that information more and more in terms of data matching. So we might use information that we gain from um, one of those notices to really understand some more about a particular uh, taxpayer and we might use that in helping to form the basis of our thinking about that taxpayer and we'll use that then and check with them. International dealings, very briefly, there are these agreements called tax information exchange agreements. And they are typically with countries that are not OECD type countries, comparable tax systems, double tax treaties. These are countries that are typically tax havens. And there are now these agreements in place that even if you've got a tax haven, the ATO can still get information from them. They're cooperating with the tax office. And this is very powerful because it means that people who are still hiding or not disclosing assets or income offshore, it's becoming increasingly difficult for that not to be detected by the ATO. This really is still a contentious issue, the way we look at some of the information that's been provided from uh, offshore. Um, But yes, you're right, we do have these information exchange agreements and we are utilising them in respect of information that we think may be held in respect of uh, groups or taxpayers offshore. And look, a very public one, of course, has been the Panama Papers, for example, where um, there are obviously investigations underway relating to people not disclosing information um, that they held offshore. That's right. Mm. Yes. Which uh, will play itself out. It'll be interesting to watch all that. If we now turn to things that are not acceptable to the tax office, what are some of the the actions or the transactions that you see that you think is not acceptable that, that, that the ATO would have a problem with? I would say that by and large, most taxpayers and their advisors are trying to do the right thing. Um, But we do see some instances of things occurring that really we just can't accept. Um, Some of those things do relate to backdating documents. 
So we might see this in relation to uh, perhaps a trust resolution. That no, may this surely not doesn't happen, not, Anna. I know. It's very hard to believe. Um, as I said, it's, it's rare. I'm not saying that it's, it's common. Um, but we do see sometimes the backdating of documents that sets up maybe a different tax outcome than may have been achieved otherwise. With the benefit of hindsight. With the benefit of hindsight. It's a, it is a wonderful thing. What about if we're creating documents that recharacterize something that's already happened? Yes, we do sometimes see documents being created. Uh, maybe it may change the terms of a loan agreement. Maybe it was not on Division 7A complying terms. Uh, we may well see a loan being created that didn't exist. And um, we actually do still receive offers from taxpayers every now and then to create a document that will corroborate their uh, their version of events. We but, always politely decline. Let me play taxpayer's advocate for a moment. If they are trying to fix up a situation, isn't that better than not trying to fix it up? It most definitely is, but we do need to be certain that what they're suggesting to us is what had happened at the time. Anna, I can think of a case from 2007. It was called Dilorenzo Ceramics. And I named this because it was a public case, but what happened was there was a company, their funds had gone from the company to a trust and it had basically been booked as a loan. And nobody, including the accountant at the time who looked after the group, had identified it was a Div 7A issue. Years later, the ATO came along, picked up and said, you've got a Div 7A issue. And they said, no, 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 here's the balance sheet. And they produced a new balance sheet where suddenly the loan had become units in the unit trust. The problem was while the balance sheet suddenly looked okay, they hadn't got any updates to the unit register. There were no resolutions to issue the units. They had not been distributing in accordance with the supposed unit holdings that had been in place all those years. In other words, all the contemporaneous documentation wasn't consistent with what they were purporting was the case. And they lost the, the decision and the comment was made that you can't rewrite history just by producing a new balance sheet. Now, many accountants would like to think they can by popping through a journal entry. And there was an article written this week on LinkedIn about this very issue um, where people are still thinking they can use journal entries to reshape what's already happened. So I think this comes back to not just the failure to keep records, but to try and reinvent something that's already happened after the event. And yes. I guess the question that I want to put to you is, how does the ATO know that that's been redone? Sometimes, and this, is, this comes out from uh, the example that you just provided, sometimes making a change to one aspect may have unintended consequences that as a result of the passage of time also then can't be amended. So we may well see a mismatch between the way that tax was recorded at that point in time or there may have been trust distributions um, that may have been recorded a particular way that if we're making changes now that means that there are flow-on effects that you can't correct at a later whether point it's in time. records or someone else's tax return or whatever. It could be a lot of things so yes it really is important to have a think about at the time what is the purpose that I'm entering into this transaction or why is it that I'm doing it this particular way um, and recording it as such at the time. Because sometimes people with the benefit of hindsight don't like the way it was recorded the first time. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we, do, we do appreciate that mistakes happen and um, as, I've, as I've mentioned earlier, and those are the instances where you might come to us 
Uh, you might make a voluntary disclosure and we might think about, well, what's the best way that we can rectify this situation? Um, and there, there are a number of ways that we could make that work uh, in a way that suits the taxpayer to some extent, but also um, make sure that the integrity of the tax system is maintained as well. So the, the normal sanctions, we're looking from basic penalties to full criminal prosecution here. There's quite a range of uh, sanctions or, or actions that the ATO can take. That's quite right. So there may be penalties for the taxpayer. Um, we may well see that there is an investigation of the taxpayer or the advisor of the advisors being involved in that. Uh, I will stress again that we are only seeing this in a very minor number of cases, um, but it really does still happen, um, as does things such as uh, manipulating the values um, of assets. An instance of this might be where we're on selling assets between related parties. We might see a change in the value of an asset or the sale uh, price of an asset over a mere number of days or months. Talking about values, a question that is often put to us is this scenario where we're trying to come under the $6 million asset threshold to be eligible for the small business CGT concessions. And there are two offers on the table. One offer is $6.01 million, which would knock us out of the concessions, or $5.9 million, which makes us eligible. And there's always been this debate about whether if the taxpayer negotiates with the vendor to let's make it 5.9 instead of 6.1, commercially, why would you do that? But if it makes a massive tax difference where you're either paying no tax or you're paying a great deal of tax, it's interesting to see where either the part fray argument or any other risk that the ATO identifies could come into play here. So does the ATO have a view on that? That's a really interesting one. I think probably where I would immediately go to is thinking, well, what is the market value? And have you taken into account the tax value in trying to set what the sale price is? There could be an issue there for part 4A purposes. This is like the old spotless issue where yes. offshore lower interest rate, but it was tax free versus onshore where it was higher interest rate, but you paid tax. Yes, that's right. So really, I think you just really have to identify that there is a risk there. And what we should be looking at is what is the actual value of whatever it is that you're selling. But market value has always been one of those fickle issues. And we know from years of looking at cases and discussions on this, it's able to be negotiated between the two parties. And if both parties say, well, you know, the purchaser's happy to say, I'll give you 5.9 because that suits me. I'm paying you 200000 less. And the vendor says, well, hey, I'm happy with 5.9 because suddenly I've got this tax-free gain. Um, maybe that's where market value lands. But well, in another right. market, is, it is, is, could have been 6.1. Is this an arm's length transaction? Let's assume it is. If we're in a full arm's length transaction and it's recorded at the time, I would probably question how far we'd be willing to take that particular issue, given there is a third party arm's length <laughs> negotiation going but, on. But then hopefully there isn't documentation left on file to say, look, if we do 6.1, then we get this tax outcome. And if we go 5.9, it'd be this, uh, let's go this. You know, hopefully that's not sitting there because that would, um, in my view, cause problems. Quite so. All right. If we now move into the trust space, what is the ATA seeing on this one? And look, I want to preface this question by saying I have seen you represent regularly at conferences and it's always been about 100A. So... Can we just set the scene? What is going on with 100A? When 
can we expect to see this ruling? And it's probably something you can't answer, but I thought I'd ask you anyway. Well, you may as well try. Unfortunately, yes, that is the answer that you're getting. <laughs> <I thought so. laughs> uh, it is still under development, but uh, be assured that we are working feverishly on it. Oh, that was good to hear. So 100A, for those of you who don't recognise the provision, this has been around since 1981. It's an anti-avoidance rule. And it basically says if you're sending your distributions in one direction, but your cash out of a trust is going somewhere else, the ATA can deem the distribution to be invalid and then the amount can be assessed back to the trustee. And all these years there's been a debate about what is the exception for the ordinary family dealing. That's correct. So this is still where we're sitting with this one. Uh, it is something that uh, has been to the GAR panel as well. We've had a look at a series of cases uh, involving various arrangement types um, and really what we're trying to test is what is the scope of that particular exclusion what does constitute an ordinary family or commercial dealing because if I think back to the cases in the past where 100a was dealt with it was usually a fairly aggressive arrangement anyway and arguably there could have been a part for a or a trust loss issue in any event um, and the commission was obviously successful in a number of those cases, including um, Ardlecroft and, and Ruffland. Um, but it's been many years since we've had a 100A case. Yes, that's right. Mm. Yes, we and we do sometimes see in 100A cases, as you've mentioned, other issues such as Part 4A, but also we may well see in cases uh, that there's been sham. So what the actual substance of the arrangement is, is not what was actually intended. Mm. All right. Or stated in, in the in the documentation. Div 7A. Now, this is something that we've waited now seven years for possible amendments. Uh, I say seven years because 2012, when the then Labor government commissioned the review by the Board of Tax, uh, it was 2016 when the government, then Liberal, said, yes, we are going to amend Div 7A. The implementation date has been deferred twice and we're now looking at 1 July 2020. So at the moment there's not much to say other than we are still waiting, um, but in terms of what the ATA is seeing with the current Div 7A legislation, what are some of the transactions that you're seeing or what attracts your attention when it comes to Div 7A? We might see in particular, if, if I think about companies, we may well see that uh, directors, for instance, are returning a low amount of income or salary against maybe a high turnover for the company itself and then we may well see that their lifestyle doesn't match what their income purports to be over a number of years there may well be reasons for that as well and it's also why it's necessary to take sometimes a longer term approach to looking at income so it may well be for instance a case i've been looking at recently whereby in particular years the directors had low incomes, but in a year prior to that, they'd received quite a significant capital gain. So it might be legitimate to think, well, they're actually now just paying down on that gain that they've made on quite a number of times. So we may always also see that there's money taken out of a company and it's not repaid within a particular year. Um, and so they're things that we might look at as identifying a Division 7A risk. Uh, we may also see this, um, and this is what we're seeing more, is through wealth coming into Australia. So we may well see um, money coming into Australia from offshore. And this is tracked through Austrac typically with fund transfers? That's one of the ways that it's identified, yes. Yep. Yes. 
Um, and we may find that there are Division 7A risks arising out of that as well. Okay, moving on to the old capital versus revenue argument. It is still interesting that decades later, we still have cases appearing before the High Court, the Federal Court, of course, as well, where they are debating this. So CGT is huge. There are so many concessions and, and losses available and discounts and things that there's always this incentive to argue, well, of course, any profit I make is going to be on capital account. What would be the main CGT areas that you come across? I think a lot of practitioners forget there are, and I'm going to boldly say, I think there are now 54 CGT events. Um, we seem to live our world in a one, but there are others. So what are the particular risk areas you see in CGT? One area that I've been dealing with and my teams have been dealing with quite a bit lately is around the K6 event. Uh, so that's where we may well see there's shares that are or goodwill or something that is pre-CGT and we're now selling it and that that has to do realistically with the business life cycle. So basically got shares or units that are pre-CGT, yes. but most of the assets in the entity are post. Yes. And we think, great, we can sell our shares or units and they're pre-85, so no tax to pay. And then we realise, hold on, we've got a K6 calculation, which is complex to do anyway. That's right. And then you might end up with an adverse outcome where there's actually a, a CGT bill. Yes, that's right. So we are doing quite a lot of work around that. And we've had some significant engagements recently whereby we've been able to assure what the outcome will be prior to entry into some of these restructuring arrangements. It's interesting and also restructuring. I remember um, years ago at a conference there was a question asked of the ATO that if I don't have a significant individual at the moment I'm not eligible for the retirement exemption in the company but if I rearrange my shareholding so I've now got a significant individual then I apply the concessions, would the ATO have a part for a problem with this? And my understanding is, yes, the ATO would have an issue with that. Now, the trouble's going to be, how far in advance of the transaction did you restructure? If we're talking 20 years out, I think it's going to be very difficult for the ATO to join the dots and say, you restructured to get that outcome for that particular transaction 20 years later. That's yes, almost going to be right. impossible. Yes, that's right. But if it's done the day before that it starts to look like, yes, this was an undertaking you did in order to rearrange your affairs to make yourself eligible. So somewhere between the day before and 20 years is that magical line in the sand where it's okay, but who knows where that is. Again, it all comes down to the circumstances of the particular arrangement. It also comes down to really understanding what was what was the purpose at the time and what's understood by all the parties to the arrangement at the time. And documenting it. And documenting it. Absolutely. <laughs> Coming back to that theme. All right, property and construction. It's going through an interesting time at the moment. We've had our peaks. We're heading into what I would almost call trough territory at the moment. So, again, what are you seeing when it comes to private dealings and whether it be property investment, property construction, property sales, renting, um, the market's taken a, a bit of a, a decline off some of those peak prices and that's affecting a lot of taxpayers. Yes, it certainly is. So particularly in the privately owned and wealthy group space, we're seeing, we see a lot of taxpayers are in the property and construction industry and we're seeing that flow through in a number of ways. There's timing issues in relation to um, returning profits given that upfront there's a lot of expenditure and we don't see the profits until some time down the track. So we do have a lot of questions around some of those timing issues. We're also seeing because of the growth in 
of the urban area, I suppose. We're seeing a lot of greenfields type developments where uh, land that was previously zoned as farmland is now being rezoned into residential. And we really do need to think about where's that timing um, of going from the farmland into the trading stock. Uh, we also see some interesting issues with joint ventures. So uh, there may be one party develops the property and the other one holds the title. And so there's some tax issues that arise because of that as well. We still find that there's a misunderstanding about joint venture, particularly amongst taxpayers, but also occasionally amongst accountants, where they think they're on a joint venture, but it's actually legally a partnership. And yes, that has very right. different tax outcomes. That's right. Um, yes. Also, when we think about all the transactions that are affected by this and the different tax outcomes, we're running a couple of special topics in the next few months, one on property development in the context of income tax and another one in the context of GST. Yes. Because they're two separate conversations. But we start looking at enterprise and what could be an enterprise for GST could still be maybe capital account, but it could be revenue undertaking or profit-making undertaking for income tax purposes, or it could even be trading stock. That's right. So trying to characterise it for income tax versus GST, different concessions, different tax rules. We've got all our adjustments. There's a margin scheme rules, going concern. There's an awful lot of legislation sitting around property. Yes, that's exactly right. So I think one of the things to think about if um, taxpayers are entering into agreements that may be termed as a joint venture or something else, it really is important to understand the tax consequences of the arrangements that you're entering into. Another thing that we see quite a bit is trying to understand where is it that you've gone past the point of doing the most to have a mere realisation of your asset. So where have you gone past that point and you're actually now developing it? Was it the extra lamp pole that you put in? It could well have been. It could well have been the guttering. <laughs> that if you'd stopped short of the guttering, it wouldn't have been anything more than realisation. But the extra guttering has now made it a, a proper development Correct. on revenue accounts. So yeah, these are technical issues and, and difficult in practice. FBT, change of tact. Uh, we've had some information from the Commissioner in the last 12 months. And look, FBT is something that tends not to move a lot. Um, legislation, look, I've got to say, is very outdated. It's probably one of the older bits of legislation that we're still working with. I don't mean the 1936 Act, that is old. Yes. But um, the FBT Act hasn't really been updated to reflect contemporary type issues. And no. I say that because of things like the briefcase. Yes, that's right. And I don't know who uses briefcases these days. I think of the old fashioned leather square with the clasps. Um, a lot of young people these days are not using those. They're using what I call the crumpler bag or satchels. Yes, and that's it would right. And to know whether the ATO regards that as a briefcase. Um, I remember a discussion years ago, there's an exemption for a mobile phone in certain cases. But they were questioning whether, was this a camera that made phone calls or was it a mobile phone that took photographs? And trying to work out the dominant purpose of the device. So we've had this technological um, explosion of, yes, of that's right. devices and uses and things. And... Look, another thing that's come up recently is, of course, Uber. Yes, and I wanted we've to touch recently on this. published that. You have, and I just want to give everyone the background. So we've got two existing bits of legislation. One is GST, which requires taxi drivers, and this has been the case since 2000, that from their first dollar of turnover, they had to register for GST. Um, and that was quite simply to avoid 
fights and traffic jams in the street. Can you imagine two different taxi rents, one for the registered cabs and one for the unregistered cabs? Yes. It was never going to work. Separately, we've got some FBT exemptions where taxi travel is provided to employees in certain cases. We had a case in 2017 in the federal court where it was confirmed that an Uber driver was in fact providing a taxi travel supply or services when they were driving their Uber vehicle. And that has, of course, confirmed that they have to be registered for GST. There's been a, a mountain of information published about that. And I should note with that one, that was looking at a particular type of Uber vehicle it as well. It was the Uber X. Yes, that's yes, right. Correct. Now, following that decision, and I've got to share with you, we at Taxpanta immediately picked up on this and thought, well, that's interesting. That is a taxi for GST purposes, but is it going to be considered a taxi for FBT purposes? And it was around September that year that the ATO issued a discussion paper and, to be fair, put it out for consultation and comment and said, look, what does every, what does everyone think about this? Yes. The preliminary position taken by the ATO in that discussion paper stated that it is appropriate to interpret the meaning of taxi in the FBT Assessment Act in a manner that encompasses the federal court's finding in Uber. Accordingly, the ATO is proposing that a taxi for FBT purposes should be interpreted to mean an Uber vehicle. But the latest update on a fact sheet regarding the FBT exemption, the ATO now says that taxi travel does not extend to ride sourcing services provided in a vehicle that's not licensed to operate as a taxi. Yes. So we've got a distinction and we're going to be putting a blog up next week that talks about the Uber versus the taxi, GST versus FBT. But we've now landed a position where the Uber is a taxi for GST. They do have to be registered and yet they're not going to be eligible for the FBT exemption. So the basic dilemma for an employer is this. I'm sending you home because you're real or I'm sending you to hospital because you've fallen ill in the workplace. I can either engage the Uber, which is going to cost me less, but I've got to pay FBT on it, or I hire the taxi, which will cost me more, but I get an FBT exemption. Now, I haven't actually sat down and done the maths as to which one's going to be economically the better outcome for me as an employer. Is this an inconsistency? And where does the ATO sit with this? We've landed on this position. We have got an inconsistency in my view. Does the law need fixing? Look, I will start by saying that our position actually has not changed over time. So that always was our published position in the FBT, a guide for employers. We've restated it recently and made it extremely clear that that does remain the view. Overwhelmingly, the response we got to the discussion paper was that the legislation may not actually allow for the proposal that we'd put in that discussion paper. The reason for that is because the definition of taxi within the FBT legislation is a little circular, but it refers to a vehicle licensed to operate as a taxi. And so that really is a difference from between the FBT and the GST It's narrower, law. isn't it? Because I've got both yes. definitions in front of me. And as you say, just to repeat, for FBT purposes, a taxi is a motor vehicle that is licensed to operate as a taxi. Yes. Whereas for GST, it's taxi travel being the definition, the meaning. And it says travel that involves transporting passengers by taxi or limousine for fares. And of course, in the Uber decision, they said transporting passengers for fares by taxi or limousine is broad enough to include the Uber service, but it's far now more narrowly defined for FBT purposes. Yes, that's right. One of the other issues is that licensing of 
taxis or commercial vehicles or now because we're recording in Victoria commercial passenger vehicles is all done at a state level yes whereas we're now talking about federal legislation so that that's one of the other difficulties and then what would you do with all the hire cars out there this is the other issue that we have to contend with as well Um, historically the taxi travel exemption specifically excluded commercial vehicles or other hire cars. Um, so we've now got uh, ride sourcing vehicles that sit, in my view, somewhere in the middle of those two types of vehicles. But the legislation's pretty black and white on this for FBT purposes. That's our view, yeah. yes. Um, and it is on our website that we've also tried to use the Commissioner's remedial power to tackle this particular issue Um, but there were a number of reasons why that wasn't successful in this particular instance. Look I think back to the criteria for the Commission's discretion and one of them is that the outcome must be neutral. It must be a position that favours taxpayers and doesn't disfavour them and it must be revenue neutral in terms of the the budget position. That's correct. And I guess this would be a difficult one for you to quantify as to what would be the impact out there. That's right. Mm. Uh, It also uh, has a component in in respect of what the purpose of the legislation was and the policy behind it. So um, that that wasn't successful, unfortunately. But I do feel that all is not lost. Mm. So that's good. There are other exemptions that employers can access if they're sending their employees in ride sourcing vehicles. One of them could be the otherwise deductible rule. So if an employee is travelling in the course of business or for work, then using a ride sourcing vehicle will mean that the otherwise deductible rule applies. Um, Also, we do have the minor benefits exemption. So where perhaps an employee travels in a taxi on um, an infrequent basis. Well, let's say they got ill in the workplace once in the year and it was $80 to send them home in a taxi, that would qualify for the minor and infrequent benefit. Correct. Yeah. So I think, yes, it would be great if it fit within a particular provision, but I think there are others that mean potentially that impact won't actually be so large for the majority of employers. Certainly the media's jumped on this, and to some extent we have by writing a blog about it too. Yes. So, yes. All right, uh, R&D. Huge areas of risk for taxpayers here, and there is a... A growing sense that this has just got too difficult for many taxpayers. The cost of compliance, the risk of getting it wrong, almost a guaranteed risk of getting an audit if you make a claim. So where are taxpayers left with R&D? And I'm not going to go into the proposed changes today because that is currently in a lapsed bill and we're waiting to see whether the government resurrects those proposed changes. But in terms of the existing law. Yes, well, research and development is an area that's essential to the Australian economy. So... The tax office, of course, is highly supportive of people appropriately claiming the R&D tax concession. Um, And I suppose really what we've seen is a number of instances where it hasn't been claimed correctly. And that's really the issue here. Um, So that those who are not doing the right things are probably tainting (laughs) the ones who are. The R&D concession is jointly administered by the ATO and Aus Industry. Um, So... The R&D eligibility is self-assessed. Oz Industry uh, is the one that you initially make that um, assessment through and they do undertake reviews as to the characterisation of the activities as being properly within um, 
R&D. And taxpayers must be registered prior to claiming that concession. From an ATO point of view, we really do need to know that the substantiation is correct, that what you're claiming as R&D activities really did form part of what the R&D activities were. They weren't just business as usual activities. Uh, Also, we must see that if an associate is paid for services, that the payment actually does occur. Uh, so we do have to see that there was services provided by this associated so entity. Back to this contemporaneous documentation. That's again. right. That's correct. Yeah. The other thing where we might see some errors is around the allocation of overheads between business as usual activities and the R and D activities. Uh, so there does have to be an appropriate allocation if the overheads relate to both. Uh, we will also see that the some of the exclusions, there are four exclusions within the Act, um, and we may well see that there are those exclusions being claimed improperly. The one we probably see the most is the building exclusion. Um, so R&D isn't available if it's in relation to building works. Um, and also promoters. We are still seeing some promoters in the space of R&D. And so sometimes what these audits are actually trying to get at is, is there actually underlying promotion activity here? So something more systemic rather than at an individual taxpayer level? That's correct. Yeah. Not for profits. Yes. So quick comment on this one. What are you seeing in this space and what attracts the ATA's attention here? Because they're not paying tax, but they're still part of the tax system. Well, we do have quite a few taxable not-for-profits. So there are not-for-profits who do pay tax or which do pay tax. And of course, there's GST and FBT still. Yes, so employer obligations, very much uh, something we will continue to look at. Um, And as you say, GST is an issue for them as well. So I think um, one of the things that we do know is that a lot of the compliance work in not-for-profits is done by, particularly in the smaller agencies, done by volunteers. So it may well be people with limited tax knowledge. So we do work with the not-for-profit community to ensure that we've got the right education materials out there to assist them. Because I'm presuming many of them would operate on fairly tight budgets. Quite a few of them do, yes. Mm. Which can affect their ability to be able to um, undertake all the governance that's necessary. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So any final comments? One thing that I did want to raise, um, if I go back to our concept around tax governance that we've been talking through as we've gone through this whole discussion, um, I would like to just talk about the information system risk assessment tool that the ATO has recently released outward facing to clients and their advisors. So the information system risk assessment tool, we call it ISRA, Uh, has been used within the office for the last 10 years or so, primarily when assessing GST risks. So what we're looking at are the IT systems that are in place and how, in a GST context, all of that flows through. Um, What are the inputs? Are we making sure that all of the um, profits, et cetera, are recorded appropriately within those systems? Now taxpayers are able to assess that for themselves using the tool that we've put out there. Um, So I really would encourage people to make use of that. If anyone wants to look for the new information system risk assessment tool known as ISRA, I-S-R-A, if you go to the ATO website, just the homepage, and up in the search field, 
type ISRA, I-S-R-A. Uh, you'll see a couple of manuals, but basically third hit down gives you a link directly into the tool. That's right. Very good. Anna, thank you for joining me this afternoon. It's always good to look at um, what the ATO is doing and, and what grabs the ATO's attention so taxpayers can have a better understanding of what they need to do to, to stay underneath the ATO's radar. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Robin. I've had a lovely time. That is good. Thanks for listening to this episode of TaxYak. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers. You'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Mm-hmm.